In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Guys, who will be there in your life when the bomb goes off? It's not a matter of if the bomb will go off, but when. Do you have a band of brothers that you can lean on to call you in to those dark places, to call you up to those higher, higher levels, and to call you out when you're the cause of the bomb that's went off? Find out how to do that today on this episode. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. This is Jim Ramos. I'm here to be your guide and host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men guiding you to your best version in that stress bubble of life and beyond. But before we get into a great interview today, I want to talk to you about one of our hero stories. Again, we're collecting 365 stories of transformation this year. This one is number 93 from Jared. He emailed us and said, I'm going through a tough time right now. My wife of 15 years, so he's got a bomb that has gone off in his life. My wife of 15 years found another man and filed papers for divorce. I live in a rural area with no group of men to support me. The only good thing I have in my life right now is I found Jesus after running from him for years. I rededicated my life to Christ, and I'm becoming the man that he wants me to be. Men in the Arena has been instrumental as I discover who I am as a follower of Jesus. He said, your Facebook community saved my life during the darkest time and has been the missing piece in my walk with God. So Jared, man, we're praying for you, praying that God will redeem your marriage, brother. And hit us up at info at menintherena.org with your physical address. We'll send you some swag just to say thanks for being so open and vulnerable. Hey, hey guys, stay tuned to, at the end of the episode today for our weekly man law. And guys, thanks again for making the Men in the Arena podcast Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. Hey, I want to bring on my new friend today, Jay Holland. Jay is a husband to Emily. He's the biological and adopted father of four. He's a pastor in Stewart, Florida. He hosts the podcast Let's Parent on purpose. So you guys got to go check that out. It's a podcast designed to strengthen marriage, 
parenting and discipleship. It sounds like he's targeting the same guys we are. Super excited about that. So Jay spent the last nine years of his life navigating the leukemia journey with his son, including his son's relapse and a bone marrow transplant. During his son's leukemia battle, uh, he and his beautiful wife also adopted a special needs child from foster care. Speaking of beautiful wife, he's been married to his beautiful wife, Emily, of 16 years, but we're actually going to go beyond 16 years today and travel down another dark journey as he shares another uh, point of grief in his life. But Jay, it's great to have you on the show, man. Jim, uh, what a kind introduction and I felt a little overwhelming hearing all of that. I didn't experience (laughs) it all at one time, but I put it together in a sentence or two. It made me tired hearing it. But, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Love your podcast and love your ministry. Well, man, I, I'm I'm looking at your bio and I'm looking at what you're doing. And it's and it's you know, I, I have to keep telling guys this that we're on the same team, man. And so I, I'm so excited when I read this. I go, man, this guy is on the same team. I mean, we're on the same side of the court. You're doing the same thing. You actually are working with teenagers, which I did for over two and a half decades. And so I'm really excited to get to know you, man, and bring you on the show. And my goal is to talk less and listen more, which is uh, if that happens, we'll have a miracle today. <laughs> so. Yeah. And hey, we got, uh, you're in Oregon. I'm in South Florida. So we've got, you know, the, the country pretty triangulated there. So got it covered. I know. And hey, you know, it's kind of a miracle. Both sides of the country have sun today. Wow. <laughs> Well, that's 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 not a miracle for us. So that'll be a miracle well, on your side. Trust me, uh, it's a miracle for us. Yeah, this is. I, I, <laughs> well, I told somebody. I, so I'm from West Virginia. Oh, oh, the yeah, land I'm of from West Virginia, and and so normally, like when I go back there, it's Thanksgiving, and um, and Jim, I didn't realize that I'm a seasonal depressant. Oh, um, because you know, like I think everybody in West Virginia just kind of stays depressed for a decent part of their life, but. Uh, um, you know, I go back and it's Thanksgiving and I, and I, I promise you, I'm driving up I-95 then we go over through and there's a big tunnel from Virginia into West Virginia and the sun can be blue as can be. And you drive under that mountain. It's this huge mountain tunnel. And when you come out on the West Virginia side, it's gray. Oh, and I feel God. like it'll stay gray the entire time I'm there. Um, and so after about six days of it, I'm like, honey, pack up. It's time to go. Um, I'm going to be in a fetal position in the corner of the house if, if I don't see the sunshine sometimes. Sucking soon. my thumb and yeah, calling I, from I, I was a state snob and, and didn't like Florida. And then once I got down here, I'm like, man, the sun is really nice. Well, I got to tell you, so I'm from California, so we have sun. All It's sun is just there all the time. Uh-huh. But it's funny, coming to Oregon, I... I uh... <laughs> It's been sunny here for a couple of days. I had a guy going, a long time Oregonian. Man, that sun, it's just killing me. I said, you know, you Oregonians, you guys are like Los, you guys are like Las Vegas Raiders fans. I've never seen somebody talk so much smack against their team, but a Raiders fan. They've got tattoos, their Raider tattoo on their arm, and they're just talking smack like they hate the Raiders. Oregonians are the same way. Oh, the sun, the sun, there's no sun, there's no sun. The sun comes up, and they're like, I'm dying, I'm dying, I don't like the sun. So it's like, man, it's just so confusing. Well, anyway, hey, let's jump into our show today, man. Hey, uh, you've got uh, quite a story, man, and so... Your story involves grief, it, in, it involves uh, healing, it involves death, it involves uh, uh, guys rallying around you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So can we go back, I want to go back before you met Emily, I want to go back mm-hmm. to your first wife, and can you just go back to that point and then journey forward uh, to uh, your your son today? Yeah, I can, and as a matter of fact, if you don't mind, I'll actually start kind of back in my college years. Um, yeah. 
I uh, I went uh, my the beginning of my college I actually had you know kind of made this my goal in life and worked towards it and got in there and uh, so I started my college at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Oh really? And uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, so. Um, wanted to fly, wanted to be a pilot, wanted to do all of that. And uh, I also entered it dating a girl from my high school that I'd met and uh, really fell in love with. And I knew that I was going to be spending four years away from her. And it's funny how quickly my pilot dreams changed because I was in basic training and I heard that uh, that fighter pilots are away from home 180 days a year Whoa. in peacetime. And I was like, nope, don't want to do that. Like I'm going to be away from her for four years before I could even get married, I don't want to do that. Wow. Um, and so it was just interesting, like the Lord, it was so quick how like just changed my heart because as much as I wanted to fly, I I wanted to be a good husband mm -hmm. and dad more than that, even at that age. Um, but the big turning point in the academy was it was the first time I came in as a believer, I knew Jesus, I really did. But it was being stripped away from everything that I knew um, being stripped away from my family and all of that. And the only thing I had was Jesus. And I remember those Gideons handing me that little New Testament Bible yep. as I uh, got off the bus and got that Bible. And about six seconds later, people were in my face screaming at me. And they did that for the next year solid. Um, but I fell in love with that little Bible. And it was the first time that I committed to reading God's Word every day. It was at the beginning of, of my freshman year at the Air Force Academy. Um the other thing that happened was it was the first time that I began to be surrounded by, and this was young men who intentionally pursued Jesus. Wow. And uh, so in the midst of this uh, academy experience, it was the first time I really had a band of brothers who were calling me up um, to be more than what I was. And uh, these guys just made it normal to pursue Jesus and to pursue him hard. And I remember there was this guy who was a sophomore who was kind of mentoring me some and, and he would be like, well, yeah, I start my Bible study every day by reading a Psalm or reading, reading a proverb chapter and reading five Psalms. And then I'll start my Bible study. I'm like, Oh, Oh, well, wow. I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. So, um, like I didn't know that that was completely abnormal. Yeah. Um, and, and I was just trying to keep up and, uh, they were gracious with me, but you know, they pushed me. And over the next two years of my life, God just changed my heart and changed my desires. And um, and what at that point, I was doing well in the academy, but what at that point became a real source of pride of like, I love this place and I could never leave it. Nothing would ever make me leave it. Mm. It was like the Holy Spirit just dropped this little seed in my heart um, at, at this question of, well, Jay, what if I would ask you to leave? Oh, would you do it with them? Yeah. And that question bugged me. I didn't have an answer to it. And so for months, I just wrestled through, well, what if God would ask me to leave? Would I do it? And then that morphed into, uh, I think God might be asking me to leave. And I started uh -huh. really thinking about giving my life to full-time ministry. And I even tried to pursue the chaplaincy, and that door was not open from the academy. And then I started praying, God, just break my leg. You know, like, <laughs> make me disqualified, and then I'll do whatever you want. But ultimately, it, it felt like I, I came to the point where I knew the Lord was telling me, Jay, if you're going to pursue a life of faith, then you're going to have to make a step of faith. And so right before my junior year, I, I left the academy. Um, I ended up uh, going to Liberty University and graduating from there. Um, and uh, then 13 days after graduation from college, I married my high school sweetheart, Christy, and uh, got my first youth pastor job in West Virginia. So we, uh, you know, we were young and poor as could be. 
um, and super happy. Um, my first house, uh, the kids in the youth group nicknamed it the booger because that's what it looked like from the outside. Um, but hey, man, I was a homeowner. I was 21 years old and for $30,000 wow. in 1999, bought a home that looked like a booger in West Virginia. But we were happy and uh, the Lord was growing our life and had, you know, had a lot of trials and up and downs. We were young and, and brought, you know, our young stupidity into marriage, but loved Jesus and saw some fruit. Um, my, our church got involved in India at that time. We started getting uh, the privilege of taking teams back and forth to serve orphans in India. And uh, my wife had a degree in missions and she had a nursing degree and I had a degree in biblical studies. So we committed to, um, after about six and a half years of serving in that local church, we committed to um, leaving the comforts of our home and our family. And, and we were gonna take ourselves and our little girl who was two at the time and move to India. Um, and my wife was gonna help medical wow. care with the orphans and I was gonna teach in the Bible college there. And man, I was as excited as could be about it. Now, during that time though, um, I. Jim, it was like I sat down with my senior pastor and told him my plans. And sometime within a week or two before or after that, my wife started getting sick. Mm. Um, she started having some some just real unexplainable um, bowel issues. And, and we thought she got a bug on one of our mission trips or something like that. Well, it just kept growing and kept getting bigger. And it was like that year, the more steps that we took towards India the more her health fell apart. Oh wow! And um, if you've ever been in a in, in a situation with somebody that starts to get in a long term chronic sickness, it can it can um, it, it's not just the sickness, the the physical health that starts to be involved. There's there's emotional issues, there's spiritual issues, and we began to really be in a meat grinder with oh, all of that. Oh man! Um, I, for the first time in my life, I felt like I've got serious marriage problems and. I'm either going to be a missionary or divorced, and I don't understand this. And I honestly, Jim, I just wanted to die. I didn't want to kill myself. Wow. I just wanted a meteor to fall on me so that totally. I could be done with this. Um, you know, we 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 worked through and we wrestled through things, um, and at the same time, her health just completely fell apart. And uh, finally, India was off the table, and so here we are, living in West Virginia. Um, just grieving and dis, you know, disillusioned with that loss, but also just trying to figure out, okay, what are the pieces that we're going to pick up? What are we going to do next? Mm -hmm. um, and it felt like things stabilized a little bit. And then all of a sudden, um, her health just bottomed out even more. She had ulcerative colitis, which is very treatable for a lot of people. Um, but she just threw bad reactions to all of the treatments. And so it ended up being in October of 2005, at this time, I think I was 28 years old, and so was she. Um, we were in West Virginia, but found ourselves up in the Cleveland Clinic in um, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, hoping to have surgery just to remove her colon and be done with this. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're in the hospital for two weeks, and instead of having the surgery, she throws a, a massive uh, MRSA infection in her bloodstream. Oh. And so now, like, her very blood is, is infected. Um, so they they cancel surgery. They put a pick line in her chest. They put her on IV antibiotics, and um, then we go home. And we're supposed to do four weeks of treatment, uh, and then come back for surgery. We left the hospital that morning about 9 a.m. And that night, probably about 9 p.m., I had collapsed and fallen asleep. And we were actually staying at her mom's house. Her mom comes and wakes me up. Um, that that 
my wife has, is, is moaning in the bathroom and the door is locked. And so we break in and she collapses on the floor and, and my high school sweetheart, Christy ends up going to be with Jesus. Oh my gosh. CPR on, her, oh. Uh, on the floor of her mom's house. Oh, and you're, I mean, still carrying those scars. Yeah. Oh, um, you I can't know, imagine. I can tell the story. Um, and sometimes like it just gets a hold of you. It's been close to 20 years at this point. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as we get into the rest of my story, you know, I'm going to tell some things that, that like would compete for worst day mm-hmm. for people. But, um, but, you know, I can tell you worst day of my life was the next morning when my little three-year-old wakes up and oh. asks, where's mommy? Oh no. And, and I hold her in my arms and say, you know, mommy's not coming back. Mommy went to be with Jesus. And, um, yeah, that was it. That was the worst of the worst. And, um, oh. we, uh, we had been through a lot. And Jim, I'll tell you, like, there's, there's so much shock that happens with that because if, you know, if you've been married for some time, one of the, one of the things is you're going to go through rough patches of your marriage, but you kind of live in the anticipation of I'm committed to this marriage and we're going to work out our stuff. It's going to take some time and we're going to work it out. And then all of a sudden in a situation like this, where the bomb blows up Mm -hmm. and like, there's nobody to work it out with. Um, like there's nobody there. And, and this is, this is your, this, by this point had been my best friend of 10 years. Um, but I can tell you this, like I at rock bottom and that was my first real experience with rock bottom. Wow. Um, real, real experience with rock bottom. Jesus was the rock and he was there. And, and, and Jesus began to send people to me who had been in my life um, you know, that first week after she died, um, friends who we had, like, you know, I had been their youth pastor, but I was only three years older than them when we started. And now yep. they're coming and staying with me. And then the big thing was, um, I had this friend who we had been friends in college, just barely, but like, we really liked each other, but didn't have a deep relationship. And he called and said, Hey, I want to come visit, but my wife is saying I should wait till after the funeral and spend time with you and everybody goes home. And he came and actually moved into my house. And, um, and this guy now trains Muslim missionary missionaries to the Muslim world. And he has spent, you know, a couple decades working in that field and, and wow. he's that kind of guy and moved into my house. And it was like, Jesus sent a brother who was a professional counselor and therapist to live with me and let me spew my vomit and and cry and be angry and affirm um, and affirm that that was okay. And, you know, if I didn't have that, I don't know that I would have felt, you know, as a pastor, you know, it's like sometimes you feel like you have to have all of the right answers, even yeah. in the worst situations. Yep. And, and, um, and, and my friend was like, no, you sound like Psalm 88. And I, and I went and looked up Psalm 88 and Jim, as far as I know, it's the only Psalm that, uh, there's no resolution at the end. It's like, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I'm abandoned. I'm left alone. And then it basically ends with, and darkness is my only friend. And when I went back and read that, I found so much comfort in the fact that like in scripture, there is a 
There's a prayer to God that has no platitudes in it. None of this, and I know you're going to work it out, Lord, um, but just the raw emotion of somebody who feels abandoned and and just their soul horned in, in bits. And I felt such comfort and freedom in that, that like God not only sees that and hears that, but God affirmed that as scripture. And it was my brother that showed that to me. Well, you know what's interesting? And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is, I hear this cliche from Christians all the time. Oh, God will work it out, or God is in control. God's going to find a way. And the truth of the matter is, is sometimes God doesn't. Right. But but in the yeah. midst of the way not being found, or in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of grief, you know, God does what you do said. He sends somebody to be your feet. So when when you mm-hmm. when you think of a, uh, I think it's a. First Corinthians, it's called. Uh, God is called the God of all comfort. When you when you hear that verse, what do you think of there? I'll tell you what I think of is is the statement that that it is a Christian myth of uh, <laughs> you know God will never give you more than you can handle. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You've not been in my life because He's <laughs> given me more than I can handle all kinds of times. Yeah. Why? Because that verse, the God of all comfort, says why so that the comfort that we've been given, we may be able to comfort others with. I think it's 2 Corinthians 1, if, if I'm thinking right. Yeah, yeah. Um, 2 Corinthians and, 1, and, I, had him, I had him flipped, yes. Yeah, and uh, and the truth is, like, I have been in situations over, the theme of my life is God giving me more than I can handle, so that I reach out to God, and also that I live a life of vulnerability that allows other people to minister to me. Yes. Um, and... And you know what? As a man, um, sometimes the the sometimes the temptation is the like I can do it on my own. Yes, um, yes, it is. But but when we live like that as men, first off, we rob other men of the joy and blessing of what God made them for. Um, but secondly, it's not true. You can't do it on your own. It's a it's a prideful statement, honestly, from the pit of hell. Yep, for and it's sure. going to lead you into all kinds of trouble. Well, so yeah, I yeah. I experienced this. Uh, you know, a friend coming when I was so raw and vulnerable, I couldn't say no. And that just kind of opened this door. I ended up moving to Nashville, moving down to uh, the church that that he was involved in. And I served there Um, right before I moved. I ended up taking my little girl, uh, Brooklyn, to Disney World down in Florida. Um, And uh, and I had a friend who I had been his youth pastor, uh, this guy who I knew lived kind of near Disney, and so I asked him, hey, can you know, do you want to come to Disney with your daughter with us? And uh, I knew he and his wife really well, really loved them a lot. Um, one of those where I was his pastor, but it was so close in age that like by the time we were done, we were uh, among best friends. Yep. So he invites me to come and stay with him, and when he does, uh, he mentions that his sister-in-law is single um, in that time. And, and my friend uh, is one of these that like at the time— really high on discernment and super cynical in life. Like he belonged to Jesus, but uh, had a lot of cynicism and can point out people's issues and errors pretty quick. Yeah. But here's this girl that he's talking about that he can say nothing but the highest things about. And he's like, man, she really is incredible. And so like my brother, he was, you know, he was, he was my brother in Jesus uh, within a year was my brother-in-law um, <laughs> because he, he, you know, 
I'm in, in forever indebted to the fact that, that like he brought me a wife, you know, he got me a wife. And so uh, I met Emily, um, who was from down here. She was the older sister of his wife. Um, I, I honestly did my very best scare story with her on the first date that we had together, which was like six days after meeting her. Uh-huh. Um, and my, in my story was like, so I'm, uh, you know, obviously I'm a widow and I have a little girl and I have no interest of in bringing girls in and out of her life. Um, I am not moving to Florida. Uh, in the next few years of my life, there's a 30% chance that I'll live in Nashville. There's a 30% chance it will be in the Middle East. There's a 30% chance it'll be in Thailand. Um, but if that doesn't scare you away, I think you're pretty awesome, and I'd like to pursue a relationship with you. And so, like, I just kind of laid it all on the line, and um, she she was crazy enough to to stick around. And, um, you know, in 2007, uh, God blessed us to to get married. She moved to Nashville within a year. Uh, you remember my, I will never move to Florida. Oh yeah. Welcome. How's the weather down there in Florida? (laughs) (laughs) It's nice a lot. They have a way, they have a way of uh, getting what they want. Don't they? When they, when a woman sets her mind to something. (laughs) Well, let me tell you how she got what she wanted. Um, by laying everything she had on the line. And I can't even tell you it's what she wanted. The reason we're in Florida is because the, the week that I met Emily, she had bought a town home down here at the, I think the peak of the market in like 2006, you know, the peak day of the market. Yeah. We get married and within um, just six months of being married, she's renting out the townhouse that she bought. And within six months, the market just absolutely collapsed and we couldn't rent it for half of what the payment was. And my wife who had spent years working two jobs coming up with an, a, a down payment had put $75,000 on this house dropped it all the way down to where she would get no money out of it whatsoever. This is what she was willing to do for me to continue to to live in Nashville and pastor in Nashville because I had a heart and a commitment to that. She laid $75,000 down in the first year of our marriage for that. And yet we still couldn't get one person to come look at the house. And so it was like, well, I can't blame my wife. Um, she's doing everything she can. Mm-hmm. The only honorable thing I know to do is go pay the mortgage. And I can't do that on a youth pastor salary from Nashville. So yeah. we moved down here. Um, I worked for her dad for the first year, um, um, doing wholesale produce. So I went from like my dream church job to loading produce trucks at 3 a.m. six days a week. And um, and the Lord just forming and refining my character, but also um, eating healthy because I'm eating produce all the time. <laughs> it's free. Uh, so God, yeah, it's great. Um, God brought us to, to the church that I've been at. We got to join as a member within a year. They brought me on staff. And so I've been, I've been here at Covenant Fellowship for, um, on staff for over, for, I think this is my 15th year that I'm on. Wow. And, um, and it's ended up being just the sweetest place that we could possibly so be. So I have, I have a question, Jay, for, for you. So you're you're loading vegetables. You're working this weird shift. Yeah, you get to eat them for free or whatever, getting healthy. But where where does uh, obscurity play a role in the grief process? So clearly, that was a season of obscurity for you, right? We see Moses going into the wilderness for forty years. You know, we see P- Paul doing the same thing. You know, we see Elijah. We see these guys going into obscurity. Do you, do you see that as a season of obscurity? Does obscurity play a role in the grieving process? That's a great question. Um, 
I, I think it does. You know, when when I when my wife first died, uh, within a week, I resigned from my job, um, and I spent nine months just grieving and healing and not being an official anything, just being a member of my home church, drained all meager savings that I had and lived yeah. off of it. Um, but yeah, I think I wasn't quite ready. Um, I mean, I think I could have done well with it, but I think the Lord did a lot in that time. And one of the really interesting things was right before I moved, I was in Nashville at a meeting with some businessmen um, who I had just like begun a small men's group with. Mm-hmm. And I was moaning and whining about moving to South Florida. And I was telling them, I'm at a church that loves missions. I'm at a church that has a heart for the world. It's some of the greatest preaching that I've ever heard. And I'm going to the naked state where nobody can keep their clothes on. And everybody I've ever met is addicted to recreation. And I don't know anybody that's seriously following Jesus. And one of these businessmen, I remember he just had these big hairy arms and he had a mulch business that supplied Lowe's and Home Depot. And he pointed his finger at me and he's like, look, you're sitting here saying that you want God to use you and you were willing to go as a missionary to the other side of the world. And you're saying that you're in a place that has everything and you are moving to a place that doesn't have any of it. And you're complaining about it. God's sending you to the very thing that needs to be done. And maybe you're part of the piece that needs to fix it. And uh, and it was just really humbling to me. Um, And uh, so I kind of had that in my heart. And what was the interesting thing, Jim, is is, um, when you go load produce at, at, you know, I think I think the job started at 3 a.m. every day, six days a week. Oh, I, I, I had wanted to do missions. It was like 10, 12 hour shifts every day. So you load produce, then you drive a box truck and you drop it off. And, and, and it was really humbling um, because, you know, like here I am with a college degree and I'm screwing up a cantaloupe and a honeydew yeah, at 3.30 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. And I'm being made fun of by this dock worker who didn't graduate high school. Um, and, uh, and I'm wanting to be like, don't you know me? I'm the, you know, I'm the boss's son-in-law, but I'm not going to do that because I don't know the difference between a, you know, honeydew and a coconut. (laughs) But also the nations were on that dock. You know, I was working with guys from Jamaica, Honduras, from Palestine, from uh, all over the place. And, and they didn't know me as pastor Jay. They just knew me as Jay. And and so like I had to establish the ability to talk to them about Jesus by working hard mm-hmm. and by having integrity with my mouth mm-hmm. and by doing what I was going to say and by encouraging them as, as men. And then maybe as we're driving in a truck together, they might listen if I start telling my story about mm-hmm. Jesus. So um, that was really good for me. It was really, really good for me. I think it's good for every pastor to have to work uh, a, a regular job um, so that we don't pout and complain about pastor jobs sometimes. Well, well, you know, yeah, really, pastor jobs are hard, but so is every job. Well, it's really interesting. So Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president way back when, he was a guy who taught Sunday school. A kid came into his class. The kid had a uh, black eye or a bloody lip. And uh, he said, what happened? He said, a bully picked on my little sister, so I punched him in the eye. Teddy Roosevelt gave him a dollar for doing it. And then the superintendent of Sunday school kicked Teddy Roosevelt out of the Sunday school class as a teacher. And Sunday, Teddy Roosevelt, as president, talked about how Christian men uh, are, tend to be intellectually strong but soft in every other way and not even able to carry a conversation with the, the dock workers of the world. And I think there's something to be said of, uh, you know, 
these guys that go out during the work day and they're working with construction guys and, and dock workers and all these guys, then they come into the church and they're they're thriving with Jesus because they're used to thriving in a hostile environment where pastors, you know, we're in a pretty safe environment. You know, we're around Christians all the time. So I think there's something to that. So, so far in your story, you talked about your, uh, your buddy at the Air Force Academy getting in the Word and calling you up. You've talked about your mulch guy calling you out. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm wanting to hear a story about somebody calling you, and I'm sure it's common. I'm, sur- I'm sure somebody's going to call you in here. I, I'm sure that's going to happen. So you're married to Emily. And married and then, to Emily. Um, yes. We, uh, we have two little boys together. Emily adopts my, my daughter, Brooklyn. So we're a family of three. And um, actually, we're a family of two and a half. At this time, Emily's pregnant with with Micah, and Emily and I are out uh, to eat at Cracker Barrel uh, uh-huh. for a little morning date. And she's telling me about this book that she read. I think it's called Renting Lacey, and it was about the number of people uh, in the foster system who end up getting trafficked, um, who end up getting involved in human trafficking, and and it's just breaking her heart reading this. Emily just has such a tender heart for the Lord and a heart for those who are down. And so we're at, we're at Cracker Barrel and we're eating and Emily starts telling me about this and she starts weeping and crying. And like, I really feel like we need to be fostering, you know, we need to be helping rescue people from this. And I'm like, Emily, you got to stop crying. Like people are going to, I'm sitting at breakfast with a pregnant woman crying. I'm going to look like a monster. Can you please, well, we can foster, we can do whatever you want. Yeah, Just just stop stop crying. crying. Don't make me look like the guy making his pregnant wife cry at Cracker Barrel. So, yeah, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I I wanted to to foster as well. Um, but uh, you know, we so we jumped in, we did the training, we had Micah, and he was a little baby when we got into the foster system. Um, a few years go by, my boys are at that time five and three, and we have uh, a little a little girl that we got at one years old, but we were the fifth family in her life. Um, oh her my first gosh. Birthday. And, um, and a lot of challenges really start coming out. And, uh, you know, she was taken from, she was taken from, uh, the hospital, removed from her parents from the hospital and then family after family. And a couple of those families divorced in the year they had her. So she just suffered a tremendous amount of neglect and, a lot of really sad wiring uh, in in her brain during that time. And so we're pretty early in it and um, things are already starting to kind of, you know, we're dealing with things that we don't understand, but by this point we've committed to the adoption process. And um, Jim, we're like within a month of the adoption being final. And my son, Elijah spikes a, a 105 degree fever one Sunday evening which I mean, we have four kids, so you're used to high fevers. This yeah, totally. Radio with this, uh, yeah. The next morning, uh, he's got the fever and it feels like pneumonia. So we're like, okay, well, we need penicillin, and so we try to get him into the doctor um, to to just get some antibiotics so we can go home. And we can't get him into the doctor. They say go to the emergency room. We're embarrassed to go to the emergency room for a fever, um, and. And then we hear the news that, that changed the trajectory of our life. I mean, I remember sitting in that room and the doctor comes in and, uh, and he looks at me and my wife and he says, this makes me sick to my stomach to say, but uh, it looks like your little boy has leukemia and there's an ambulance pulling out front. 
to take him to the um, children's hospital oh right down gosh. the road. He's in really bad shape. And so, um, is he, is he the, the five year old or the three year old? He's, he's five at the oh. time. I just five. His little brother is um, three. four or three. They're 18 months apart. And then their little foster sister is, is um, 16 months younger than that. So I think she was one and a half or two. And then his older sister, Brooklyn, who's just in sixth grade and as sweet as can be, is up north getting a puppy with her grandparents while her brother contracts leukemia. And uh, so we we got, I didn't even know what leukemia was. I mean, I knew it was bad and I, I didn't know it was a blood cancer mm-hmm. at the time. Um, uh, Elijah is diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which um, I learned is the most common childhood cancer. Um, so that's good because they know how to treat it pretty well, but it's a very aggressive cancer. And um, he ended up, I mean, as a five-year-old little boy, I think he had five or six units of blood in that first day oh. in the hospital. And I think I think it was 85 or 90% of his bone marrow was leukemic cells and 30% of all of the blood in his body was leukemia by this point. And so, I mean, had we waited another day, he could have died. And, oh he's a, and it's like a week before he seemed fine. And then the next week he's on death's door. And so, you know, you're in absolute shock at this time. Um, but I remember something, Jim, as, as I'm in the back of the ambulance with him, um, we're going in the ho- we're going from one hospital to a children's hospital. And I've told a couple of people, I've called my parents, I've texted the staff at church. And all of a sudden, I start getting texts from these different men saying, hey, you know, Rod texts me, hey, just tell Elijah I'm praying for him and I love you. And, and Bob does that. And another one. And, um, and the guy in the ambulance, uh, in the back of the ambulance, because I'm reading these to Elijah mm-hmm, as we're going mm-hmm. out, you know, hey, Rod just wants to know, you to know that he loves you. Um, and the guy in the ambulance, like, it looks like you guys got a lot of people that, um, that really care about you. And I remember turning to him and saying, yeah, we really do. And I, and I, and I asked him, I said, do you have, um, do, I said, these are, these are the people from our church. And I asked him, do you have a church family? And he said, no, you know, we've, we've looked around a little bit, but we just haven't done it. And I remember saying to him, you know, this isn't the only reason because, you know, I think following Jesus is the main reason. But, but man, let me tell you, there's going to come a time in your life where the bomb goes off. Mm. And when the bomb goes off, you're going to need some men in your life. And when the bomb goes off, it's too late to find those men. Like, you need to invest in that ahead of time. And that that was a, it's funny because it was a side conversation. I don't remember many conversations from my life, wow. honestly. But I remember that one because it feels like what a good theme that, that I have been graced by God to experience as a man. Wow. Is, uh, when these bombs have gone off, God has graciously surrounded me with men who carry me and my family through that time. And so we experienced it again with, um, with Elijah's initial leukemia treatment. We, um, we had a group of people come in and like extreme makeover, renovate our house to make it um, safe for him to be there and to tear out carpeting. They installed a, a hypoallergenic air conditioning system to kill bacteria and viruses in our house. Um, I had men just come and take me from the hospital to go sit with me and talk and let me cry. Wow. And, uh, and this was this was our experience of like in the worst of the worst being loved so deeply 
that we, there was no doubt that God was involved in this. There was no doubt that we could ever say we are alone or abandoned um, because of the brothers and for my wife, the sisters that, that were in our life and surrounded our life during this time. There's just so much I want to say to that. Um, John 13, 34, 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples the day before he gets killed, right? And he says, and this is what brought up when you spoke. He said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And honestly, the church is broken in a lot of ways. Yes, we're filled with hypocrites because we're all broken people. But the bottom line, I think the thing that the church brings to the table that no other entity in the world brings is a tight community of people who love each other and want the best. So what, I, what I'm hearing you, you started off the podcast, and this isn't in my notes. I'm just going with the flow right now. You talk about a guy who called you up when he was reading his Bible study. He, he called you up in your faith, your faith in Jesus. Then you have the mulch guy. He called you out about your work on the docks. You know, he called you out and reminded you of what God is doing and what God has called you to. And then you had your wife called you in to the adoption process. And literally, when you're in the ambulance, you have all of your Christian brothers going into your dark place and calling you, and they're calling you into that with them. And so there's such a beauty. There's such a beauty here because I think so many dudes today are half baked, right? They've got guys that call them out. Maybe they got a guy that maybe they have a guy over here that calls them up. But these guys are usually not getting all three. They're not getting the three tiers of being called up to a higher level, being called out for their stupidity and their wrong views on life, and being called into the deeper, darker places. That let's be honest, Jay. Most guys we don't want to go there. You know, until until we're forced there. I was actually talking to a brother today, and I said, I think one of the bravest things that men can do is be vulnerable. Yep. yep. Because we spent our whole life, you know, I got this. I got to do this. Like, yep. you, you know, you need to be tough, and you do need to be tough. Like, you can't make it through this world without being tough. But at the same time, if you're not vulnerable, uh, what is it? He who he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Yes. And uh, and if I if I'm not willing to share my weaknesses with some men that I can trust. Um, then I am I am just on the trap of the devil, waiting to be devoured. And um, Jim, I'll tell you that for me, kind of the the um, I don't know the sweetest example of this, or maybe it's just the sweetest because it's my current example. Um, let me fast forward a little bit. Uh, we go through three and a half years of treatment. It's a bear. It's an absolute beast. You know, they they nearly put your kid on death's door in order to cure this leukemia. And so Elijah is cancer free. You know, we go through three and a half years of treatment, and then Elijah is cancer free for four years. And then in September of 2021, um, we he spiked a little fever. He had a little bone pain. We go to get it checked out, and and are just floored to find out that he has relapsed at this point. And um, you know, people people have asked like, what's the difference in hearing cancer the first time and hearing relapse? And the best way that I know to describe it. It's like that first diagnosis of cancer is like being blindsided by a bus that you never knew was coming. But that word relapse is like the monster that had been tapping on your window mm. every day since you heard the first one. And it's tapping and tapping. And now all of a sudden it is taking up residence inside your soul. And, and I'll tell you that for me, the relapse hit heavier and darker 
than the initial one did. Oh, um, man. And there were a few reasons for that. One was like, you know, I was never afraid of leukemia before it started. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's there's not been a day in the last, you know, seven years before the relapse that I haven't thought about it. It's a constant, even even in gratitude, of thank you, God, that my son is alive. Thank you, God, that my son is alive because leukemia hasn't killed him. You know, like, yeah. so I know I, I've been thinking about it and here it is. Plus, uh, a teenager's body does not bounce back like a five-year-old's body to these extreme um, treatments. Plus, we were going through it in the midst of COVID. Uh, in 2021, the hospitals were still basically in lockdown where mom and dad could come in and nobody else. And I remember some of the sweetest times being a band of 50 of his friends and family standing outside the hospital window, holding up banners and signs, just saying, hey, we love you, because they couldn't come in and be with him. Um, and, and it was during that time, that first month of, of treatment, that I had a group of, of guys. One of them was my brother-in-law that I've already told you about. He got me a wife, so really loved him and stayed close to him, and we've yeah. grown together a ton. Uh, but a couple other guys that had gotten involved in, we have, we're all dads, we have kids of the same age, they've all come in and they serve in our student ministry together. And I just remember reaching out in the text to them about a week after his relapse. I'm in the hospital, uh, my son has these horrible migraines, so the room is dark all of the time, he doesn't want to talk, and there's just hours and hours of being alone at night. And I just, I said to these guys, hey, I'm in a hard spot. I'm in a dark place and I'm alone in this room and Elijah's asleep night after night. And I just don't want to go down a trail where I start looking at things uh, out of comfort that, that are going to devastate me and my wife. And yes. so I just need you guys to ask me what I'm looking at. You know, it's funny because, you know, I know that I know that Jesus is watching uh, you know, I know that, you know, I know Psalm 139, I've got it memorized. I know that he knows when I sit down and when I rise up and he understands my thoughts from afar and there's nowhere I can go without him. But there's something about having a group of guys ask, hey, Jay, what are you looking at? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. how were you tonight? That, um, that helped in those times of temptation. Um, and, and what was really sweet about these guys is that, um, it, instead of it becoming an accountability group, it I would say it became a life group. Yep. A, accountability was just one aspect of it. And we have, you know, one of the guys, um, Dave, is is uh, just so incredible about first thing in the morning, sending some kind of encouraging text of what he's reading in God's Word. And so that simple request in September of 2021 has started a string where I don't think that we've missed three or four days of, of texting one another first thing in the morning of encouragement to one another, of what we are reading in God's word, of just not even waiting to be asked, but openly confessing, I, you know, I've really been struggling with this. Um, and, and it has ended up forming into where now we, every Friday, we check in with one another and we walk through a specific set of questions with one another of like, I don't want, I don't just want accountability with my lust and thought life. I want a group of men to, to hold me up in all of the areas of my life. And so we, we kind of share with one another every week, you know, is Jesus being honored in the way that I'm treating people at work and in the way that I work? Have I been upright in my financial dealings with people? Have I shared the gospel this week? 
have I had any tempting or flirtatious thoughts that would uh, not glorify God or expose myself to any material that would not glorify God? Um, the, a couple of others in there, like, has anything robbed me of my joy this so, week? I got to interrupt you. I got to interrupt you because you're, you're quoting right out of my friend Rod Handley's book, Character That Counts. Aren't you? Aren't you? You are, aren't you? Huh? Some student brought these to me years ago. That's Rod Handley's. That's I started doing them with students, and I was like, I want to do a podcast on this. And yeah. was like, oh, shoot, these are copyrighted. I just I just did a podcast. Just say Rod, it was Rod Handley. You know, the last question is, did you just lie to me? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So that's my friend Rod Handley. Yeah, he's out of Kansas City. He's out of uh, St. Louis uh, or Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. Anyway, that's so funny. I'll have to tell him that. I just reported a podcast. I just recorded a podcast on those 10 things. Oh, that is so funny. Let me let me be a commercial to every man listening. They've heard it twice now, right? If they listen to that one and they yeah. listen to this one. How many times is God trying to tell you something before you should act on it? Um, because, yeah. that, you know, that's not a coincidence. No, that's just too funny. And this is something that, you know, it it's a ton of vulnerability to, to do this. But uh, also, I, I think for many guys, it's welcome because whenever we hear accountability, all we think about is, well, it's because, you know, I don't want to be a pervert and I don't want to look at porn, right? Yeah. Um, but the truth is that my walk with Jesus is so much more than my eyeballs and my, my lustful thought life. And, uh, and I cannot grow in the Lord if all I'm thinking about is not looking at bad things. I yes. need to be an honorable man in all of these other areas of life. And truthfully, the more I put myself to the other questions, generally, the less that one question is uncomfortable because, like, it's just, it's in the way, you know, like that, that those temptations are, they're in the way of who I want to be and what I want to do. And when you end up getting a group of guys who are willing to buy into that, um, man, it's like rocket fuel on your spiritual life and your emotional well-being to do that. And so that's that's kind of where I am right now and experiencing this. And tell your buddy, uh, his his questions have permeated South Florida because they were brought to me by a student in our group and they've come to me and then they've gone out to others and and they're good. That is just he he's gonna love that. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because there's on one side, there is uh, protecting yourself while in the darkness, like focusing on the darkness, like i.e., uh, don't do porn. But th but that's not Christianity. Christianity is pursue Jesus. So you pursue the light, and anything that's going to get in the way of the light, you expose to the light, right? So the fact that you've exposed that temptation is uh, bringing light to you. And I want to go back to temptation real quick because you said that that God will give you things that you can't handle. Uh, and, and people who say that God won't are misquoting 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13 10, says, No temptation has seized you but that which is common to man, and God is faithful when you're tempted to sin. God will provide a way for you to escape out from under it. So that verse has nothing to do with pain. It has nothing to do with pain. So, you know, I, I'm I, we're at the end of our conversation here today, man. But, you know, I, I was thinking about what you were saying just now. And there is a verse in Proverbs that says, there is a friend who is closer than a brother. And it sounds like you're talking about that guy. Yeah. So that's that's so good. So what... I see Jesus modeled in my friends. 
And, uh, and what I really like, I think one of the best things about it is when we encourage one another, um, my friends are so quick to say, but man, you should see me without Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. You you should, you should, you should see what my life is like without Jesus. And so like, that's a, such an encouragement is, um, is getting humble guys and it takes a while, you know, it really does. It takes a while. This is, but, but you get there by being vulnerable yourself. You get there by like some guy has to be the first guy to say, Hey man, I, I need this. And, uh, and then you can see what the Lord's going to Well, you know, I think what I'm hearing today, Jay, is that the bomb will go off. It'll either go off with situations you cannot control, a wife with a, 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 a chronic illness, a son with a, a leukemia, or it'll go off because you're just a jackweed and you're doing stupid stuff. So the bomb is going to go off, but we need to have a band of brothers around us to call us out, to call us in, and to call us up when the bomb goes up. Is that what I'm hearing you say? I, I think that's a great summary of, of um, you know, you need a band of brothers because there's not any one man uh, that can model all of Jesus. Because you get a bunch of us together, we start we start filling out all of the beautiful aspects of our Savior. And uh, that's a pretty cool experience. That's really inter- I love how you said that because all of us together begin to bring out the very the various attributes of Jesus. That's cool. So hey, the most important question today. How's your boy? Man, this is a, a really special week for us. This past Friday, we had surgery to remove his port. Um, wow, which praise the Lord. is the official signal. That is one year after the bone oh. marrow transplant. Uh, we had a test, and he is cancer-free down to 1 in 10 million cells. If you take my, my son's blood, it's the exact perfect DNA of his little brother, who was his perfect sibling match. Wow. And saved his life, and so I got two boys that are united in spirit and united in blood. Um, and this is the sweetest season of life as we just oh. celebrate every day and, and uh, get to do dad and some things. Gosh, well, praise the Lord, man! I will just keep praying for your boy. And uh, hey, so how do our so let's kind of circle back here a little bit. How do our guys get a hold of your podcast? What's the best way to access that? Yeah. Okay. Best two best things I'll tell them is Let's Parent on Purpose is a podcast that's on every podcast platform: Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify. It's actually produced and hosted by ChristianParenting.org, um, so you can find it there as well. Um, but I also send out a weekly email of just things that I like, um, things that I've found that have been helpful for me in my marriage, in my parenting, and in my discipleship. Uh, that that email is called Things for Thursday, and if somebody signs up for it. Um, I send them a, a few things right on the front end. There's a marriage snapshot tool that you can do on a single date with you and your wife to kind of just get a picture of where you are. Uh, there's a fun family conversations ebook to help you with really good guided conversations with your kids around the dinner table or at bedtime. Um, I also have a marriage visioning packet in there where if you get a weekend away with your wife, you can kind of dream and explore what is our mission as a household together. So all of that is is free, and you can get that by texting the word THINGS, T-H-I-N-G-S, to 66866. That's THINGS to 66866. And, uh, and then I'll let you know uh, every week I tell you what I'm talking about on the podcast, which will include Jim here uh, very soon. I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, we're going to talk about how to parent through the stupid years. So that'll that'll drive guys right to your stuff, man. I'm telling you what. Hey, Jay, it's been so good to have you on the show, man, and to, to see and experience your heart and uh, 
just to hear how men in your life have uh, helped you when the bomb went off. So God bless, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, brother. Guys, our man law this week is man law 18 in my book, Man Laws, 101 Ways to Get Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By. You can find that on our website. It's a free download for you. Man law number 18 is simply this. Never share an umbrella, bathroom, unless it's public, clothing, unless it's hunting gear, or the backseat of a motorcycle. And I would say also never share a space in bench seats of your truck. Always leave a gap there, guys. So the life rule, guys, is build healthy relationships with other men. Healthy relationships. Hey, guys, if today's podcast has helped you, make sure you click the subscribe button on your podcast app and you are following us. Many guys listen to the show but never subscribe. When you subscribe, it it raises our numbers. It, it helps us to impact more guys. So, man, please subscribe to the Men Arena podcast, Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men. Until next time. Feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game, get dirty, grind it out, and be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.